Hello, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. The name of the show is Across the Pond. Thanks for joining us. And we uh, call it Across the Pond because we record over here in the United States on the East Coast, right outside of Philadelphia. And we love talking about red letter Christianity. If you look at the old Bibles, they often have the words of Jesus highlighted in red. And uh, we, we like asking the question, what if Jesus really meant that stuff? And what if we lived as if he did? So we're, we get to have some guests on the show. And this week, we've got an amazing brother, uh, David Garlock, who was uh, is a returning citizen. He spent a lot of time incarcerated. Um, and he is one of those folks that Henry Nowen spoke of wounded healers, that we, we, we use our own wounds to, to become healers of others in the world. He's running an incredible program right outside of this, uh, this Philadelphia area in Lancaster uh, for re-entering citizens, returning citizens, folks that have been incarcerated. And it's a reminder, too, that here in the U.S., we've got less than 5% of the world's population, but a quarter of the world's prison population. Wow. One, one out of four uh, uh, incarcerated folks is right here in the United States. Uh, so thanks for joining us, David. You've got an incredible story yourself. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show with us. Yes, and could you just start off by giving us a brief testimony of uh, where you came from, how you got to where you are now? Well, uh, thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Uh, a quick story about me is my brother and I we were sexually and physically abused for eight years. Uh, when I was 19, my brother was 22. We felt the only way out of this situation was to take the offender's life. And so after that, both of us received 25-year sentences uh, in the county jail. The third day I was incarcerated, God used the detective to speak life into me, and I surrendered my life to God. To God, and the whole time I was incarcerated, it was just about preparing myself for my release. So I was able to get educated while I was incarcerated. And Brian Stevenson, who is over Equal Justice Initiative, who is also an Eastern University alum, had told me about Eastern University. And nine months after I got out, I moved up to Pennsylvania outside of Philly to attend Eastern, where I graduated two years ago. And now I'm the program director of a Christian reentry home, and a majority of the men that we work with are men who have committed sex offenses, too. Uh, tell me about the man that uh, you and your brother ended up murdering. Uh, uh, who was he? A, a relative? A friend? A, a neighbor? Who, who, how did you make contact with He? How did he make contact with you? Uh, he he was a non-family member, so he had just gotten out of prison in South Carolina and moved to Seattle, and my brother was in a receiving home, so he was in a home for kids who were on the streets, hmm. and this individual started molesting my brother, and after a couple months, forced them to move in with him, and after that, they got my mom and stepdad from California and brought them back up to Washington, and the only reason he was doing that was where he could have access to me because a lot of people who have commit commit sex offenses, their main thing is about grooming the individuals that they abuse. That phrase grooming is an interesting one, isn't it? It When you say you're grooming somebody for a sexual offense, basically it means that uh, you're being nice to them, you're telling them how wonderful they are, you're uh, you're making them feel good and feel loved and feel concerned about them. And uh, 
uh, grooming is uh, getting the individual to like the person who's about to abuse him or her. Uh, and so you were groomed, I guess. Uh, yes, sir. And I mean, it wasn't a lot of grooming because the first time that I met him is the day that the sexual abuse began with me. So it was a very quick grooming period. And really the only reason I went over that day is because I hadn't seen my mom in two years. And so he used that love that I had for my mom to get me over there and into a place where he could begin the sexual abuse. So you had this experience, this uh, uh, horrendous experience with this guy uh, uh, abusing you sexually. Uh, uh, what did you feel immediately after it was over? I mean, uh, you go to bed that night. What's going through your head? What's going through your head the next day, uh, the next week? I mean, there was definitely a lot of, I felt free for the first time. So for eight years, I was in this state where I didn't know who I was. So I, I wore different masks, you know, so around folks at church, I was one way. Around folks at school, I was another. Around my family, I was another. So now I was able to put all the masks down. But then I had this gut-wrenching thought process running through my mind that I just took somebody's life. Uh-huh. So it took them four months before I was arrested, and that was probably the worst four months of yeah. my life. Yeah, that's uh, after you committed the murder. Uh, you felt free. Uh, I'm talking about uh, you got sexually abused. Uh, immediately after that happened, what happened? How did you feel oh, then? I'm talking about the, the initial time. I, I was so confused. I, mm. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why it was happening. And I didn't know if it was something that was supposed to happen because, I mean, I was 11 years old. So I was very unaware and kind of naive to everything that was going on. Mm. 11 years old. How old was your brother? Uh, my brother was 14 years old at that point. Just a little older. And, and uh, I mean, what, what I'm what I'm stunned by is that now you're you're working with folks. Um, I'm sure some of whom are they're, they're, You're running a, a house for folks who have been convicted of sex offenses. So you're helping some of the um, people that have done things that, that exactly like the person who hurt you, right? And, and, I mean, that takes a lot of grace, and I wonder how you ended up moving uh, towards that kind of work. I mean, a lot of it goes to one of Brian Stevenson's quotes. He says, you're not as bad as the worst thing you've ever done. Mm. And so, really, that's the mindset that I have, and you, you hit it on the nail. It's about grace, you know, and I look at these men not as what they've done, but as who they are, who they're standing before me. And the name of our ministry is New Person Ministries, and so I view each man as a new person in Christ, you know, because the old has passed away and the new is here, and so that's how I view the men. Mm. You said something that was rather intriguing. Uh, you said you uh, went to uh, uh, prison, but the when you got arrested, there was somebody uh, in the judicial system that uh, shared Jesus with you in a very powerful way. Could you say a little bit about that? So it happened November 1st, 1999. I had just confessed to the crime after seven hours in the, in the interrogation room, and we were heading back to the county jail, and I was asking what type of sentence I was going to receive because I was thinking I was going to either get the death penalty or life oh without. And so I was asking him what type of sentence, and he turned to me and he's like, do you believe in God? And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not studying God right now. What's going to happen to me? 
Yeah. But he was very persistent. And so that was the, the aspect that changed the whole trajectory of my life, that one conversation. And tell me a little more about the conversation. Where did it go? So you believed in God, and then what, ha- what, he, what did he say? What did you say? Um, what he had told me is, like, when I finally said that I do believe in God, he's like, you need to seek him now. So when I got back to the county jail, I asked for a Bible, and so they gave me a little New Testament Bible. And I grew up in the church, so I knew what to say, how to say it. I was that good church boy that was there every Sunday. So I went to Revelations, and I got to Revelations 3.20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock it. If anyone opens the door and allows me to come in, I will come in and sup with him. And I just cried out to God, and immediately— this joy and peace came over me, and I began singing and dancing in my six-by-nine cell. Mm. Oh, my. That's a—I mm. mean, every Pentecostal who's listening to this show is going to say, Hallelujah, that sounds terrific. That's the way it should be. <laughs> when Christ comes in, no matter who you are or what you've done, uh, there can be a sense of joy and ecstasy that comes over your being. We've got that uh, that quote from Brian uh, uh, th- that we're all more than the best, the, the worst thing that we've done. We're we've got that on our wall uh, in our our house, uh, David. It's a beautiful quote. We're all more than the worst thing we've done. As you as you do this work, you know, there's some folks that would probably say, you know, you just need God, and uh, you know, we need to kind of uh, pray away the the evil in our hearts but there's there's a lot of structure i would imagine that goes along with uh, the intentionality of trying to heal from uh especially uh, really an illness of of sex offense and what does that look like in community like you're you're building a, a couple of houses with folks that have that have all had the same kind of shared history um wh- how do, what does recovery look like in that context well, um, in Pennsylvania, most of the people who have committed sex offenses have to go through uh, sex offense or sex offender counseling. So they're constantly going through one-on-one counseling and group counseling. And so what we primarily work on is the spiritual aspect. And I mean, one thing in the U.S. that we do not have is restorative justice. And I look at my job as providing that restorative justice because most of the guys won't be able to actually have contact with their victim. But since I'm a victim, I'm able to help bring about healing to them and them to get to realize that, hey, I can forgive myself for this act that I committed. That's beautiful. We should pause there just to, so that you can say a little bit more about that. But restorative justice is um, a really beautiful thing happening all over the world. And, and it holds out the hope that that both the offender and the person who has been offended can have a form of healing, right? That, that And there's often like victor offender um, groups that happen. Um, but it's a real different way of thinking about justice than the punitive justice system, which is like, what did they do wrong? What crime did they break? And what punishment yeah. do they deserve? And you know, restorative justice is about sort of healing the wounds of the harm and, and making space for the person who's done harm to be healed as well. Right, David? Yeah, exactly. You know, in in our judicial system, the person that is usually left out of the whole equation is the victim. So restorative justice allows the victim to have a voice. And so you have the offender and the victim and the, uh, the community sitting together. And this allows a dialogue to take place where the victim can ask questions to the offender as far as why was this crime committed? What led up to it? Why was 
that individual chosen. And then the offender is able to talk about their own story because a lot of the people who have committed sex offenses have actually been abused themselves. You know, you know, restorative justice stands over against the way in which society generally operates. Uh, society is into retribution rather than restoration. Mm-hmm. Uh, you committed a crime, you're going to have to pay for it. And uh, you go to jail and you say, we're going to put you in jail until you pay for the crime that you committed. Uh, you know, and then they have this interesting statement. They say, he paid his debt to society. Well, what you said is so different than that. Uh, it's not society in general that is uh, the major problem, although that's part of the problem. Uh, it's this, that there's a person who has been severely hurt uh, by the crime, uh, the victim of the crime. Uh, is there going to be any way of putting him together, or are we as a society simply going to punish the offender and forget the person who was offended? And what you're saying is you're promoting a restoration. Here's a person who has been broken by a crime committed against him or against her, and that person needs to be put together. I know when it comes to uh, uh, heterosexual rape, uh, very often the person who commits the crime uh, has in the back of his mind, oh, she's yelling, she's screaming, but in the end, uh, she really enjoyed it, which is absolutely absurd. Uh, and and yet, uh, in interviewing some people, I've found that they th- think that until they're confronted with the person that they hurt and see the brokenness, the hurt, the shattered life because of the act. And the the offender has to be confronted with that. Unfortunately, you never had a chance to confront your offender in that way. Absolutely. And I mean, when you have that confrontation, it, it helps. And there's a lot of growth that comes from it. And I've seen it myself when I was incarcerated in Alabama. There was a a gentleman who had committed rape, and he got the chance to have this reconciliation, and it was so amazing, and it was great. And just seeing it, and they actually became really good friends and were visiting each other all the time. So there is that hope that relationships can be created and restored. Hey, we should uh, pause just to say we're, uh, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo, and we uh, are glad you're joining us for the show. We're ha- we have a guest on this week, David Garlock, who is uh, an incredible brother. He's a survivor of sexual and physical abuse who uh, ended up incarcerated after taking the man's life who was abusing him and his brother. But um, beautifully now, what he's doing is an a incredible work of restorative justice and criminal justice reform leading um, uh, a home for returning citizens who have been uh, convicted of sexual offenses. So um, it's, it's incredible work. And I, I wonder what, as you look at our system, um, uh, our, our criminal justice system, David, um, uh, you believe in criminal justice reform. What does that look like? What, what are some concrete things that you could see uh, us doing better in, in our country or around the world? There's a lot of people listening in from other places. I mean, one of the main things is we definitely have to get rid of the lengthy sentences that we have. Um, a lot of the life sentences, especially here in Pennsylvania, if you have a life sentence, which we have over 5,000 men and women in Pennsylvania who have life sentences, 
they're never going to get out of prison. And that is snubbing out a person's potential and opportunity to be redeemed and to be restored. And along with the death penalty, the death penalty goes back to an eye for an eye. You know, we are living in the age of grace, and we have to be able to get to that point where we show grace and we're like, okay, you committed this act. It's horrible, it's heinous, but there is that redemption. Everybody can be redeemed. Mm -hmm. Do you you say that, let me just say, a very common uh, belief in our society is that uh, pedophiles do not change. Uh, somebody who's uh, sexually attracted to children uh, cannot be changed. I'm sure you've heard that. Tell me about your reaction to that statement. I, I totally disagree with it because I see this on a daily basis. And if you look at statistics, um, people who have committed sex offenses have the lowest recidivism rate. Uh, people who have committed sex offenses and murders have the lowest recidivism rate. of the sex offenses that are happening right now are people who have never been arrested or convicted for a sex offense. So that shows you only 5% of sex offenses are happening by people who have ever been arrested for a charge like that. My goodness. We think of of, uh, in Pennsylvania uh, the situation in the Catholic Church. We've had hundreds of uh, uh, priests that are now being exposed for abusing kids, um, and even some high-profile Christian leaders in this country that uh, have done that. Is there is there is there um, some things that you would say to to what can be done to prevent that? Like, uh, what what would you say before someone ends up doing something terrible? What are some of the ways that that people might uh, uh, prepare? You know, prevent their hearts from doing something so terrible. Um. I'd say a lot of it has to do with just education, you know, because when we educate folks, you know, especially when you look at the Catholic church, you know, these are men who have uh, agreed to be celibate for the rest of their life, you know, and as beings, you know, we are sexual beings, you know, so just having more education with those, I know there are quite a few um, Catholic churches that have taken that celibacy aspect away from priests, and I think that would definitely help with a lot of the abuse that's going on. But really, it's just that that whole education piece, not only educating leaders as uh, pastors and elders, but also educating parents more, you know, and allowing them to see different signs of grooming and different aspects like that. That's really helpful. Uh, You know, you and Shane and I all have one thing in common. We're all graduates of Eastern University, a Christian university just on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Another graduate of that school is a man who has had a major role in your life. Uh, his name is Brian Stevenson. Um, he's written a book that's on the bestseller list of the New York Times uh, for months and months and months. Uh, he's a man who runs an organization named uh, the Equal Justice Initiative. So you're in prison, and suddenly uh, you're confronted by Brian Stevenson and um, his ministry. uh, He wouldn't call it a ministry, but it's a ministry 
uh, his organization. Tell me what happened when he confronted you and what he did for you. Well, I met Brian Stevenson in 2008, and um, we couldn't go back and do anything as far as our charge because he had found numerous ways where my my brother and my court-appointed lawyers were not up to par as far as what they should have been doing. But he began working with us as far as uh, preparing us for parole. And um, folks from EJI went to both of our parole hearings. My brother got out a little bit before I did, but we were able to go through their um, post-release education program, which is their reentry program. And probably the third meeting I had with Brian, he told me about Eastern and I was interested and then I saw about the prison ministry and the street ministry and I'm like okay I'm sold I want to go and so nine months after I was released in 2013 I ended up in Pennsylvania at Eastern. And you have a Bachelor of Arts degree now uh, in urban studies focusing on criminal justice and social welfare and uh, we're very proud of you. You, uh, You graduated in 2017 is this not right? Yes sir. You know, uh, we just have a couple minutes left, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, the 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 reentry after you're spending so much time in, incarcerated, and folks get out. And I mean, some of my friends, you know, uh, before they went to jail, they there wasn't the internet and things like that. You know, I've got some friends that have been in for thirty years or so. So it's it's a uh, it's a different world when you come out, and one of the best things it seems like churches could do is help folks re-enter and tell us a little bit about what you've seen work with that or what helped you i mean really just we, we all know the african proverb where it says it takes a village to raise a child so my spin on that is it takes a village to allow a returning citizen to be successful so it takes the churches or uh, faith communities it takes the person's family it takes the neighborhood it takes employers who are going to stand with these men and women who are coming out of prison because for so long they've been told that they're useless they're never going to amount to anything so when they have people walking along them believing in them and speaking life into them that gives them hope that gives them the ability to dream again because for so long they've lost the ability to dream Hmm. well that's so in inspiring to hear you say that. Let me just say that uh, uh, up in Canada, Mennonite churches, uh, the Mennonite Christians up there, have uh, made it a practice for each church to kind of adopt a a person coming out of prison and say uh, to that person, look, uh, when you come out of prison, come to our community, be part of our church. We want to nurture you. We want to take care of you. We want to help you to find a job because finding a job when you're coming out of prison is so difficult. And a church can do that and assure the employer, hey, we're going to watch over this person. We're going to make sure this person doesn't create any problems for you. Finding an apartment to live in, that's going to be difficult. The minute that they find out that you're an ex-con, they say, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rent to that person. The church can do this, can in fact open doors that otherwise would be closed. And most important is what you just said. Be this community that says you're, you're, good, uh, you're a good person who did a bad thing. You're a good person who did a bad thing. Now let's put the bad thing behind us. And in the words of Philippians, uh, the uh, third chapter, 
Forget those things which are behind now, and let's press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your testimony for Christ is really a, an a, a outstanding one, and I'm glad you, you gave it uh, today. And uh, We're about running out of time, and uh, we want to put in one more plug for Red Letter Christians. Go to our website, redletterchristians.org, and find out about this movement where we're calling people around the world to take the words of Jesus seriously. Here in America, um, many of the Bibles have the words of Jesus highlighted in red, and we're saying, isn't it time to take Jesus seriously? I mean, we love the doctrines of the Apostle Paul, but the lifestyle prescribed by Christ has to be uh, taken seriously. Our guest today was David Garlock, and uh, he heads up, uh, or at least works in an organization um, called the Lancaster County Reentry Management Organization, a long name, and along with the Pennsylvania Reentry Council. And uh, Pennsylvania is one of only two states that provides halfway houses for people coming out of prison uh, so that they have some place to go if they don't have a church that's willing to take them into control. So uh, uh, we're glad to have you on the program. And I guess we're running out of time. Do you want to wrap it up? Because we've got 15 seconds to yeah, go. Yeah, let's do the incredible work that uh, David's been doing and uh, uh, try to heal the world uh, in the name of Jesus. So thank you, David, for your beautiful redemptive work. And let's uh, tell our own story about God's grace uh, by the way we live this week.